Hello, and in this episode, my guest is Gail Van Tatenhol, who is known to many people listening to the podcast for her work with MinSpeak and people who use MinSpeak systems. Some of you may also associate Gail with the practice of descriptive teaching and have attended one of her webinars on that topic. Now, while Gail does a lot of different presentations in the field of AAC, she remains a working speech language pathologist and still today provides direct AAC intervention. The majority of Gail's practice has been with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. She has a wealth of experience and knowledge and it's a privilege to get to spend some time talking to her today and having the opportunity to learn from what she has to say. So welcome, Gail Van Tatenhove, and thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Russell. I'm thrilled to be here today. Let's start by having you tell me a little bit about yourself and your AAC journey so far. I'd love to. Well, my journey started way back in 1972 at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where I actually had coursework that addressed the needs of non-speaking people. Plus, I did clinical and student teaching where I was supporting non-speaking people. And from those early experiences, I knew right away that I had found my peeps. After the university, I went to work at a self-contained and a partially residential school for children with significant physical and motor disabilities from birth to 21. And that was in the state of Iowa. And I was there for five years. After that experience on my AAC journey, I moved to Florida. And from 1982 to 1988, I worked at a statewide AAC assessment center where we had a four-member team. You know, the typical makeup, a speech pathologist, a teacher, an OT, and a PT. Uh -huh. And we as a team did about 90 AAC evaluations a year. While I was doing that, I also started a small private practice on the side. And because I was working for the state of Florida doing assessments with school-aged children, to avoid a conflict of interest, my initial private practice was completely and exclusively with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And then in 1988, I left my job at that assessment center and went more deeply into private practice, but I also accepted a consultant position with Semantic Compaction Systems. And so today in 2022, I'm still following that model. I do a little bit of private practice, again, mostly with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and a bit of consultation with Semantic Compaction Systems. So that's my journey so far. Given that you sort of have a hand in lots of different aspects of AAC, what, what would you consider are your current areas of special interest? Well, I've got a lot of areas that really do interest me, but I have to say if I look back over my entire career, I've had a 45-year love affair with children and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And, you know, and, and under that umbrella, I'm particularly interested in the long-term journey of AAC intervention and the long-term needs and challenges of supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. You know, I started supporting some AAC users 
when they were in school programs, maybe preschoolers all the way to high schoolers. And during that time, it was my responsibility to ensure that we selected and developed AAC systems that would not only support their language development, but also support their educational success. And you know what, Russell? Mm -hmm. Many of these same AAC users, I continue to support today. Oh, wow. Now, for example, last Sunday, I went to see an AAC user who I evaluated for an AAC system when she was 14 years old. She's now <laughs> 54 years old. Now, honestly, I hadn't seen her really for any anything for the last five years because it was about five years ago when I evaluated her for a new speech generating device. And she called me because I'm still her go-to speech pathologist. <laughs> and she's got a five-year-old device and you can start to guess what she needs me for. Her <laughs> device needs to go in for some repair. And that of course requires an evaluation by a speech language pathologist. So she gives me a call and up I go. Now, you know, this woman, I'm gonna call her for our purposes today, Samantha, is really only one example of a person whom I've followed from their years in school to their years now as adults. She and so many others have taught me about that long-term journey of AAC users. And I've learned along the way about what will be my role in their lives to continue to support them. And when I'm looking at them now, whether it's Samantha, who is uh, 54 years old, or Dan, who is closer to 50, um, or Bob, who is in his 60s, there's one thing that unites them all that I'm very interested in about, and that is those issues that they're all facing as augmented communicators that are related to aging and their declining health. Right, right. So I don't know if that's something we want to chat about a bit more. If you have some other comments, because I can also share with you that I was chatting earlier this year with the father of a son who has had an AAC system for something like 25 years. And he was one of the first people that I came to evaluate when I first moved to the States 27 years ago. And he called me last year out of the blue because of two things. One was that he was, like your client there, looking towards getting a new device. But the second was his own personal realization that uh, he as a father was getting old and he was starting to worry about what's going to happen with my son when I'm no longer there. And for him, this has suddenly become a very, very important issue. So it's not just the aging of his son, but the aging of himself, because um, you know he's widowed and he's now worrying about what happens longer term. So I think that issue, I think you're absolutely right. The issue of aging is something that is, is very important. Yeah, I, I mean, I've had those similar experiences, Russell. Um, you know, and right now the statistics the, the latest that I read, now this is a couple years ago, so it can easily have changed, and it's probably now a higher number, that there were approximately a million families in the United States where there's an adult with intellectual developmental disabilities who is living with their aging caregivers. And you know, the adult with intellectual developmental disabilities 
and those parents are you know kind of mutually growing old together in often a mutually dependent relationship they they depend on each other for sometimes companionship sometimes their household responsibilities and you know they're splitting the costs sometimes that adults getting some funding from the state and that's helping the parents stay in their own home and then on top of that if there's somebody else to support the family let's say a sibling siblings um, are often referred to as sandwichers because okay. they're compound caregivers at one end they're helping take care of their aging parents you know so they've got you know the stress of that the exhaustion of that and then they have that sibling that's always in the back of their mind where they're wondering what's going to happen here when mom and dad can't help out anymore so they get kind of caught as a sandwich that that filling in the sandwich between the parents they're having to deal with and the demands on their time and then their sibling and wondering about you know who's going to take care of the sibling and if if that if the sibling of the person with adults with de developmental disabilities is actually significantly older mm -hmm. they all wonder about who's going to help take care of my brother who's going to help take care of my sister it's it's quite stressful to a lot of these families as that adult with intellectual and developmental disabilities is aging especially when they're living in their own home it 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 shifts it changes if that adult with developmental disabilities lives in some sort of facility like a, a group home, then they always feel like they've got a cushion there, that there'd be there's somebody who's going to take care of them when when they are not around anymore to help with that. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting that this um this idea of AAC as not just a, a short-term solution, you know, you go in, you prescribe an AAC device, you work with somebody for a period of time, and then you go on your way. Uh, the reality is that for some folks, this is a lifelong thing. And we sometimes think of AAC intervention as a process that you take time with, but don't always get it into our heads that that amount of time can be years and years and even decades. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as I'm now 68 years old, I'm not that far ahead of some of my augmented communicators that I'm supporting. <laughs> and I look at what I struggle with. I've got rheumatoid arthritis, so I have issues with, with my joints and my muscles hurting. And there's a gentleman who's, he and I laugh, our birthdays are on exactly the same day. I'm only just one year older than him. Okay. And I, I remember many years ago, when he was making so many more mistakes. He was probably about, oh, at the time, 50. And I thought, what is your problem, Ken? What, you know, you're just messing up so much. And then I thought, hmm, Gail, maybe you should take your glasses off of your face, which you got a couple years ago, and put them on Ken's face and see what he thinks. He had, he had vision issues, which presbycopia, is, am I saying that correctly? You know, old age eyes. He was talking to me one day about he sees lightning in his eye. And I'm like, oh, you're getting floaters and flashers. So all those things, he had issues with his joints and muscles. He had eye issues. You know, sometimes I've had an augmented communicator where I thought, why is your device so incredibly loud? 
Well, because they're losing their hearing. It's the same way grandma's got the TV on at full blast. Right, um, right. You know, they, they're just all these things that we don't always recognize that we, we seem to have locked them at some place in their life and think, okay, this is how they're going to access now. This is how the size of things we need now. We, we kind of lock all those parameters in in their AAC system and fail to remember that aging is going to change a lot of those things. That, that woman I went to see on Sunday, I remember her at 14 using her hand to access very, very well. And I can remember that time when she was in late 30s, early 40s, where she had so much repetitive movement issues with her right. joints, her muscles, that, you know, eventually the device she's using today, she's an eye gazer. She's using eye because she could not, for the life of her, get her hand forward any longer huh. to access the full height, depth, and width of an Accent 1400. You know, and I think these are things that we learn in our career as we go through you know we, we we have an idea of what we think aac is a profession is going to be like and then the reality sets in and uh, like you say at some point as we get older we can sort of reflect and look back at things and uh, you know bearing that in mind what's the one thing you wish uh, you'd have known about when you began your career is there anything you wish you'd have known right at the beginning that you didn't Absolutely, uh, Russell. You know, relative again, if I stay on the topic of adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, I really wish I had been better trained on dealing with grief and loss, uh, as yeah. well as healthcare needs. You know, again, especially those needs and issues related to aging. You know, I was trained a long time ago. Um, but I've stayed up to speed on th stuff. I go to conferences. I, you know, I get my continuing education things. And I would, maybe you have a different percentage, but I'm going to guess that at least 80% of everything we talk about in the field of AAC, whether it's our pre-service training or our continuing education, is school-age based. You know, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of AAC. Now, if it's talking about the, the older population, then we're often talking about those folks with acquired disabilities, maybe somebody who's had a stroke or somebody who has ALS. But very few of us get trained on AAC for an elderly population, specifically somebody with physical disabilities who you know, started out a cute 14-year-old who could use her hands to control a device and now she's had multiple surgeries. She's got rods in her back because of scoliosis, kyphosis, lordosis, and she can't she can't access with her hand. And now she's got to use her eye gaze. I mean, we get very little information on that process. As as I said before, dealing with grief and loss. You know, I've unfortunately I have a list of well over twenty. AAC users who I have supported for more than 10 years who have since passed away. And most of those also had family members who had passed away. And if I'm just thinking about the AAC users who have lost their parents, you know, to be able to help them through that, I, I just did not have initially the, the training that I felt that I needed. You know, I, I'm not a professional counselor. I wouldn't pretend mm -hmm. to be. 
Right. Yeah. Um, I think I think I'm a pretty good listener, and I had to not only be able to listen to what they had to say to me, but make sure they had within their device the vocabulary they needed to be able to talk about these issues. I can remember one client. Now he's he passed away in June, but his father passed away a year earlier. And he was often in every session, he wanted to talk about his dad. As all of us who have lost somebody dear to us, um, we deal with our grief, many of us, by mm -hmm. being able to talk about it. And I promise you, there's very few augmentative communication systems whose pre-stored vocabulary includes words like cemetery, coffin, funeral. You know, the, these words, while they're not considered core, and you know, many people consider me the queen of core, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. I had no intentions for him to have to circumlocute around talking about those kinds of things. I remember the day he said to me he wanted to go to the the, the dirt place, the dirt place to mm. see his dad. I'm like, well, oh, wow. in that context, I knew he meant the cemetery. So that was a part of what was really important to me. And, and I learned that just by going through that experience with so many people who had passed. You know, and, and the other thing, and this takes me back to think about our colleague, Sheila Stewart, who many years ago, when she did her doctoral dissertation, um, it was on the topic of, of with the elderly, I believe. If, I, if I'm misquoting her, you know, forgive me, Sheila, um, but how adults wanted to tell their stories and how important it was for them to be able to tell their life stories. So I used to collaborate with this young man's, with his sister. And because he'd tell me bits of what I thought was a story. And I thought, nah, that can't be. It can't possibly be that there were snakes under his bed when he was a baby. <laughs> that can't possibly be. So I would call her and we'd talk about it. And she said, no, it, there was, there was a snake <laughs> under his bed. But you know, he, that was part of his healing after after the passing of his father, who had had a degenerative disease. So we saw the journey his father was going to have. And he just wanted to tell about his dad um, and, and just tell those stories that connected him to other people. And I, this this I wasn't I didn't know anything about doing this. I, I wish I'd been better trained on that as well. You know, and, th and thinking back uh, again on things you wish you had learned earlier, do you have any memorable failures uh, that, that you've had in the past? And, and, and what did you learn from that? Memorable failures. Oh, Russell, how much time do you have? <laughs> you don't practice speech pathology in AAC for 45 years, <laughs> I think, and, and not have some memorable failures. Well, my, I think my one of my most memorable failures, again, there was an adult, once again, with intellectual and developmental disabilities in his 60s, okay. who I helped get his first AAC system. Now, this was a good 10 years ago. And, you know, when I met him, and I'm going to call him Bob, my first question was, Bob, I don't understand a word you're saying. I don't, you have no signs, you, you, you're not literate. How did you get to be 60 and not have an AAC system? Well, of course, he's of an age that when he was in school, um, services weren't mandated for him. 
So here he is, he's 60. And then I would go to his home once a week and he shared his home with his 85-year-old mother who had dementia. Oh, okay. So it's an interesting home to go into. They already had caregivers coming into the house to help both of them. You know, and, and I did the normal speech pathology things with Bob. And he had actually had somebody in the community had heard about him and wanted to donate a device to him. And the device they had donated to him was a Vantage. That tells you a little bit more how far back that was. <laughs> right. And so he's got this Vantage, he can access it. And so, of course, I go into speech pathologist mode and I'm going to teach him how the device works and train him on the vocabulary. And, you know, we're doing lots of activities to practice. And, you know, I did do a little bit of support to do stuff to support his health care. You know, I added vocabulary for his health care issues. And, you know, I programmed in some sentences so he could quickly talk to his doctors, which I always do for my adults with intellectual de developmental disabilities, because. I know how much time a doctor gives me when I want to talk to them. I can promise you right. they get only a fraction of that time and they're not going to wait two or three uh -huh. minutes for uh -huh. an adult with disabilities to generate a novel sentence. So I always put some not some pre-stored sentences in relative to that. You know, we did role playing. You know, I would pretend to be a nurse or I would pretend to be a pretend to be a doctor. You know, but what I missed which I consider as my failure, is, is all those underlying things that were happening in his life related to his mom's declining health and his okay. personal deep, deep fears about what was going to happen to him. Right. You know, and I already, you know, I mentioned about those over a million families are living in that kind of situation with aging and declining caregivers. And so after his mom passed, Bob's life fell apart. He ended up living in a nursing home um, until he passed. And once he went into that nursing home, he never used his AAC device again. I went oh, there, I tried to support him, but Russell, in all honesty, he, he was in such deep depression. Right. Um, and, you know, he just, he wasn't prepared for this. Nobody had really talked to him about this. He had never visited a nursing home. She just died one day and a couple days later, he's in that nursing home and it, it broke my heart. Um, and what I learned, again, that's one of those experiences that as I went through it, I said, never again, never again will I be afraid to help them talk about their fears, help them right. talk about what they see for their future and let them talk about the impending death of those critical family members. You know, again, I'm not a grief counselor, nor am I a mm -hmm. pastor, and I don't pretend to play those roles, but I am a person who specializes in communication. And all those things fundamentally are communication. And after being with him so many years, not only am I a speech pathologist, but I'm a friend. And I wanted him to always see me as a safe person that he could talk to about his fears, what he's afraid of. You know, I needed to be able to add the, those words. I didn't add into his device the words funeral and memorial service or cemetery, coffin or grave. I didn't add any of those. So he really had no way to communicate about them. And nor did I 
add his memories into his device. Today, I do with devices, device users. I make sure within the notebooks, if they have that feature in their speech generating device, like our accent users do, right. I make sure they've got stories so they can tell their memories of the people they've lost. Gotcha. So I mean, that, I, I really felt like I, I missed the boat there with Bob. And But in memory to him, I learned my lesson and I, and I really think that I do a much better job today. So those are the things you've learned. You know, we all learn from our mistakes as well. Uh, you know, what, what advice in general would you give someone who wants to pursue a career similar to yours? All right. Well, you know, there's a lot of ways that I could answer that question. But since we're on the subject of supporting adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, I hope there are people out there who want to say, man, I want those folks to be my people too. Um, <laughs> and so to you, to you out there who have a similar love for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, I have three simple, very practical bits of information. First, be prepared for honesty. Most of the adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities that I've supported have very little guile in them. I hope you know what I mean by that. They're not deceptive. They're not trying to manipulate necessarily. What I loved about so many of them is they tell me the truth. And here's an example I'll give you. I've struggled my entire life with weight issues. I've got a nephew who holds the record as the largest baby ever born in the state of Wisconsin at nearly 17 pounds. Oh. So, yeah, I come yeah. from a family of big people. With, but with my weight issues, it goes up, then it goes down a little bit, and then up some more. And you know what? My family, my friends, they never say anything about it. But Bob, or this one guy, one day he said to me, and I'm going to call him Ken. It wasn't Bob. It was this guy. I'll call him Ken. He said, Miss Van, you fat again. <laughs> and I just had to laugh. You know, he was, he was simply calling it as he saw it. No judgment about it. It, it was the fact. He's like, I got eyes. I can see. Miss Van, you fat again. I had to just say to him, yeah, Ken, I am. He's like, okay, then we just went on to talk about something else. I so, you know, I just I love that. I could I could fill up an afternoon talking about the honesty that these guys will tell you. You know when they're happy, you know when they're sad, you know, they're not putting on a fake front. So that's one of the things I absolutely love. And be prepared for that. Somebody might say, you know, might insult it might feel like an insult, but it's not. It's just honesty. Second thing that I would say, if you think you're going to follow in the footsteps that I've followed on supporting adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, I will say to you, be prepared for a lot of out-of-pocket expenses. You know, that's very practical um, because the funding system for the support of adults and AAC users is limited. You know, remember the woman I talked about called, named Samantha, who I, you know, I went to see on Sunday right. because of yep. the price repair yep. well she has no family left and she lives alone in a house that is in horrid condition when i opened the box 
with her device in it because she had put it into the cardboard box thinking I could just take it with her. I opened it up because I had to take a look at it. Roaches sprang and scattered across the table. Ew, yeah, ew. You know, I'd done all the paperwork for Medicaid to pay for the device, but who's going to pay for the shipping of the device back to the manufacturer? She didn't buy one of those warranties because the state of Florida didn't pay for that extended warranty uh-huh. that covered shipping to and from PRC. So who's going to pay for those shipping costs? Well, I've known her since she's 14. Guess who? I'm going to cover those shipping costs. I'm going to pay for them out of my pocket. Right, so right. over the years, I've maintained a small fund. You know, somebody might say, you know, Gail, could you do X, Y, or Z? And, you know, we can pay you. And they say, we can pay you a hundred bucks. And I'll say, sure, I'll do that. It's not going to be a a huge amount of money, but that kind of money, a hundred bucks goes into the fund. That's a special fund I keep. Um, And I know how much is in that fund. So I know I've got enough money in that fund that I can pay for her shipping up to PRC to get her device. It repaired. So I, you know, I dip in it for any number of things because um, I could fight the funding sources and say, you have to pay for this funding. You've got to do this. You got to pay for the shipping. Okay. I promise you that'll take more paperwork uh, and yeah. require weeks. And they are still likely to deny it. And I just feel like I can, I got my little fund. I put money into it. And it makes a huge difference to Samantha that her device is going to get up there quickly and be repaired. Right. Yep. So that's the next thing. If you want to work with, with this population group, I would say the third thing is be prepared to be working alone. If you work in a large facility that provides services to adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, then you're likely to have other speech pathologists and maybe some OTs or PTs in the facility. In the majority of cases where I was working with a family and their adult child, I was the only therapist working with them. There was no OT. There was no PT in the picture. I often had to wear the hat of an OT and and figure out access issues. It was me who carried extra switches in my car and bits and pieces to help with access. It was me who kept a toolbox in her car with every possible thing in it that I might need to fix something on a wheelchair, on a mounting, on a switch. I used to get these undergraduate and graduate students who would do some clinical work with me you know, as they were going through the university training And every one of them, when they were done working with me, I gave them a toolbox. And it had a number of tools in it and a roll of duct tape, of course, because you never know when you have to fix them out with some duct tape. Because I was always that person who had to do those types of things. Now, thankfully, I have great OT friends who were always available to help me, usually with a phone call. Now, you know, take a picture, show them what it looks like or send a video to them. And more and more things related to a wheelchair will be managed by a wheelchair vendor, not necessarily a PT. So you have to develop those kind of good relationships with them, especially those wheelchair vendors, to make sure that they remember me. They remember 
when this person is getting a new chair, that this mounting system needs to fit on this new chair. I cannot tell you how many times I've showed up at an adult facility and they say, hey, he got his new chair. He's in his new chair today. And I look at it and think, hmm, nobody told me it's a square frame. All the bits and pieces for mounting his device goes on <laughs> round tubing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What are we going to do? And they're looking at me like, well, just put it on his chair. Well, <laughs> you know, now we've got to dig into that slush fund, you know, order a piece to get that mounting on there. So, you know, right. so my three things are, you know, be prepared for honesty, be prepared for out-of-pocket expenses, and be prepared many times for working alone and wearing a lot of different hats. What are some of the best resources that you've found that have helped you along the way? Well, Russell, actually, I think folks in the UK are ahead of us here in the US in addressing some of the issues related to supporting adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, particularly when it comes to uh, aging and grief and you know coping with that, that whole process. Because mm -hmm. when I was searching for information, I went to the, the website, I found this wonderful website at the University of Hertfordshire, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, again in the UK, it's H-E-R-T-F-O-R-D-S-H-I-R-E. So how would you say that correctly, Russell? Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire, okay. Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire. Okay. Well, listen to Russell. He knows how to do it properly. <laughs> they, you know, they just had a lot of great information that I found very helpful on the subject of health, what to expect at different life stages, how to deal with bereavement. Um, and so I found that, and I just looked at it a couple of days ago to make sure that it was still an active website. And it is. So, so that would be one that I think I found very, very valuable. Another resource is to join the Facebook group called SLPs, Working with Adults with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. It may not be the most active face group out there, but when people post things and other people respond, I have found that it's a great community for sharing things and people are sharing very valuable things. And then the third thing that I would say would, and this is going to, I think, probably surprise a lot of people. I'm going to say a new resource that I'm really loving is Special Olympics because I was a volunteer this summer for the USA Games held in Orlando. So just like the regular Olympics, this was the U.S. Olympics. People from all 50 states and the Caribbean came to Orlando, 5,000 athletes. And I became a volunteer at the Special Olympics. And in my volunteering, I volunteered for a program called Healthy Athletes. And Special Olympics, and their healthy athlete program is the number one program in the United States providing healthcare services 
to adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Huh. I, you know, I think the Special Olympics is, you know, yeah, people are running races and they're swimming. Right. You know. yeah. Who thinks about Special Olympics in terms of healthcare for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities? Plus, they have a program called um, their leadership program. Now, at the Special Olympics, when it was held in Orlando, I was a volunteer with the Healthy Athletes Program, which all athletes coming could rotate through seven different stations and get a health screening. One of the health screenings, you know, was for their vision. And if they found vision issues, there were eye doctors there writing up their script for them. And then there was another station for hearing screening. And there were you know, audiologists screening hearing for you there, but there was also audi audio hearing aid vendors there. They walked away with a new hearing aid in their ear. Podiatrists, mental health counselors, uh, folks checking their hearts. Their, I mean, they got complete physicals. I thought, why do I sign up for this? You know? <laughs> yes. This was incredible. And then I was talking to another person because we were, you know, volunteering together. And he said, oh, he the other day had been volunteering in the leadership program. And I heard him talking about what the leadership was program was all about. And I thought they are focusing on raising up adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities to take real leadership of how they want to be treated, how in uh, getting employment, in getting continuing education, in advocating for health care. And he showed me some of the paperwork and I thought, man, a speech pathologist, it looks like a speech pathologist wrote some of this because it was defining the, the terms, making sure they understood what this vocabulary meant. Okay, I was just yeah. absolutely and utterly impressed with what Special Olympics is doing. They're more than running races. It sounds like it. I, I wasn't aware of any of this. No, I wasn't either. And I thought I thought I knew about Special Olympics. So it's definitely a resource that I was not aware of. And I'm still in the process of exploring how to capitalize on it, because I think I think it could be an amazing resource for us. You know, obviously, if if you're going to capitalize on having all their health screenings at one of their events, you need to be an athlete there. But they they go beyond that as well. So I think it's it's really an amazing um, resource when we're thinking about some of our adults who are aging who use AAC systems. Yeah, it definitely sounds like something that we could maybe explore again in the future because there's a sounds like there's a lot going on with Special Olympics. Definitely. Well, there's also another thing where you could be a partner where they now have like I could become a special Olympian. I could join an special. I would do it as a swimmer because I'm a swimmer and I could become one of those special Olympic partners where I'm swimming with the adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. We're competing together. You know, it's it's not a mentorship program. It truly is just partners. And then I could go compete at the next Special Olympics four years from now being held in Minneapolis. I could be, you know, a 72-year-old woman competing in the Olympics. I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll get to see you on the TV doing that. That'd be quite exciting. <laughs> that's the only way I could get a health screening in four more years from Special Olympics, is if I become an Olympian. 
So another question here, who are possibly three people who you feel have influenced you most in your career? Well, my first person, I'm going to go way back to 1976. And the person's name is Joan Sasala. We still share Christmas cards. She was my supervisor when I did my first student teaching. She was the principal of a school for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And what I remember the most impactful, impactful from Joan was she told me that I was a natural therapist, that I was made for working with children with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Now, I don't know if the rest of my career became a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I gotta tell you, she gave me great confidence. She really set me on a course that I've maintained you know, for 45 years. So I, I credit Joan with that. She, she said, you were made for this. It, it made me feel kind of mission-driven. The second person who I think really influenced me has to be Bruce Baker. Uh -huh. He changed me with his introduction of MinSpeak, and he really supported me professionally, personally, sometimes financially, for supporting me for 30 years in my use of MinSpeak systems with adults with intellectual disabilities. When I first met Bruce, he would never have claimed to be an expert in adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, but he was always there to help me problem solve when I was stuck with a solution for an adult. Okay, and yeah. so he really was, he was there for me. And then my third person I would pick is a young man by the name of Jonathan Davis. He was an AAC user who I saw from the age of two until he passed at age 18. Now, I, I, I wanted to cite Jonathan because he inspired me actually at a very low point in my life in about two, 2007, when I thought I might actually walk away from the field of speech language pathology. Mm. Um, I think sometimes many of us go through those kinds of crises. And for me, it was Jonathan, it was him and his family if I could say part of, but they're probably the main reason. I'm still working as a speech pathologist today. He, they were those inspirations for me to, to keep going. So those are my three. So as we get closer towards the end here, just a few more questions, if I can sneak some more of your time here. What's the one common myth about AAC that you'd like to debunk? Oh, that's an easy one. The Fitzgerald Key color code. Oh, Edith Fitzgerald <laughs> never had a color code. The credit for those colors many of us use where we might make verbs green, adjectives blue, nouns orange, people yellow, that color code needs to be credited to Bliss Symbolics Communication International in Toronto. There is no such thing as the Fitzgerald key color code. So once you know that truth, that myth, you can debunk that myth, you can win bets at AAC conferences for the rest of your life. <laughs> and uh, a little slot I like to call here the three C's, which is uh, not your clinical competence here, but I, I ask people to make some recommendations related to culture, courses, and clinical practice. 
And so the first one in terms of culture is, uh, do you have a, a book, an album, or a movie that you'd like to recommend to people and why? Okay, well, I was recently encouraged to read a book that I should have read years ago. And I maybe did, and I blocked it out of my, my memory. And that book is Moby Dick, of course, by Herman Melville. And I have finished, I have gotten through Moby Dick, and I now love it. I agree with some who cite it as the great American novel. And I agree with a theologian, actually, R.C. Sproul, who wrote that the greatest chapter ever written in the English language is the chapter of Moby Dick titled The Whiteness of the Whale. Um, he wrote how it shows insight into the symbolism that Melville employs in that novel about how whiteness is used to symbolize things in history and religion and in nature. So that's the book I would pick. If you've never read it, give it a try. I mean, it's not an easy beach read. Don't say, I'm going to take that to the beach this weekend and try to read it. No. But I found it really packed with deep theological and spiritual symbolism. And, and that spoke to me. So I, that's that's the book I would recommend. Okay. So for listeners, uh, Melville's Moby Dick is worth reading. Or as you said, rereading if you've forgotten it from, from years ago. Uh, my second C is uh, courses. Is there any sort of course or conference or event, and that begins with an E, not a C, uh, that you think ASE practitioners would benefit from? Yeah, in fact, it's a brand new event I'd like to recommend, and it is Impact Voices. And that's when you spell the word impact, put two A's in there, like AAC, Impact Voices. And you can go to impactvoices.org. They have a virtual hangout for AAC users. They hold it, um, I think, every third Thursday of the month. And AAC users should be 10 years or older. And while that's specifically for an AAC user, I think practitioners can attend. And they need to be able to take that experience of taking a back seat and let the AAC users run the show. I've attended, I find it always impactful. And other professionals who attend have found it very, very impactful. But they're also having a live face-to-face -face conference in Washington, DC on October 7th and 8th. And I think practitioners need this experience to go to a conference where AAC users have organized it, are running it, are the speakers at it. I, I really think that it is a valuable experience for practitioners. Some of you might say, hmm, I think that sounds a little bit like that conference that they used to have in Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh Employment Conference. And it, it may have a feel like that to it. I don't know because I haven't been to their first conference yet. And here's just on a side note, if you if you dig the idea of an organization like Impact Voices, that is AAC user run, is really focused on giving AAC users a voice, an authentic voice in the AAC world. If you purchase things from Amazon.com, and this is not an infomercial for Amazon.com, you can designate a donation that comes from Amazon, that from all of your purchases will go to Impact Voices. 
So it's just a great way to support this organization that really costs you nothing. So about six months ago, I thought, why don't I do that? Why aren't I supporting this organization through any purchase I make on Amazon.com? So Impact Voices is my recommendation for a conference or an event. Excellent, Ari. And my final C here is clinical. And so maybe you could offer two or three tips for encouraging best practice in AAC. Okay, well, as I thought about this question, I'm gonna draw from Will Rogers, the great American humorist who said, it isn't what we don't know that gives us trouble, it's what we know that ain't so. When I first heard that and I was applying it to AAC, I thought about those 45 years under my belt and I thought about those trends that have come and gone, thought about so many of those deeply believed best practices, which turned out to be ain't so. And, and one of them that came to my mind way back in the early days of AAC, there used to be a well-established best practice that we all knew to be true, that we needed to try to develop speech first. And if after a number of years of working on speech that failed, then try AAC. It was a fail first model. Now, thankfully, that best practice that we all knew and believed in has bit the dust as that ain't so. So right. thinking about three tips today, I mean, I don't want to point out stuff that might be ain't so, but I think we always have to keep our minds open. And the first thing is, I like to provide, when I'm doing AAC intervention, I've always provided explicit systematic AAC instruction. And today there's a feeling or a practice going through our field that you need to model. And if you just model, 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 then everything will be fine. And I'm nervous about that. I'm kind of thinking that might be one of those things that we eventually say, maybe that ain't so. I want to remind everybody, give you that tip that yes, you're going to model. But as speech pathologists, we need to providing, be providing real language therapy. And that means we need to be doing instruction in the areas of pragmatics, vocabulary, morphology, and syntax. Just doing modeling is not enough. Okay. Second yep. thing, okay, let's think about our strongly held practices in the area of motor plans. Now, I might be I might be stepping on a landmine here and blowing my leg off, but <laughs> learning, I will say, learning through motor plans is highly effective. I don't deny that. But I think we can't just say, well, I'm gonna teach my vocabulary or teach some language skill through, through a motor plan. Because every adult with intellectual and developmental disabilities I've ever supported needed and was able to learn the full richness of their available vocabulary. Again, because I was teaching it to them. It was essential for them to be able to know how to explore and find words on their own. Which then, once they find that word, 
they will know where to find it. They will develop a motor plan to be able to communicate it. I remember an example not too long ago in an adult's language activity monitor sample I was looking at. And I thought, what is he looking for? I, I saw him, eventually he found and brought up the word order because they were wanting, he wanted to order something. He wanted to tell his sister to order him something for a present. And the first place he looked under was money. And he kind of explored the other icons that were still lit up. Because in his head, you know, you think, well, it takes money if you're going to order something. And that, he couldn't find the word order. And then he looked at the word food. He was looking for, he was thinking about what we order things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by ordering pizzas, we order, you know, we, you know, we, maybe we order there, you know, we couldn't find it. Then he went to telephone and boom, there he found it. He had some mental construct to know where to look for, to find a word that nobody had ever taught him to use through a motor plan. Right, and right. You know, when I think of his vocabulary, you know, he's got, Russell, he was using Unity 144. So how many words, Russell, just ballpark figures in 144? Four or 5,000, maybe. Four or 5,000, okay. I'm sorry, you're never going to do a specific activity to develop a motor plan for four to 5,000 words. You have to have additional strategies like this user could have to find additional words. You have to teach through lots of different means and help people to be able to learn and use their their system through what they know in their head, as well as what they know through their body, which is their motor plan. It's not just one or the other, it's both. You know, my sister, she's a musician and, and she taught me that. And Russell, I bet you as an emerging pianist would agree that as you're learning to play a musical instrument, the piano, you got to learn some things in your head and then you execute it and you develop the motor plans for playing it without hitting a lot of clunkers. Wouldn't you mm-hmm. agree? Absolutely. Yep. I'm with you there. Okay. All right. And then my final tip, and that's again relevant to our topic today, is that adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities are great candidates for robust AAC systems. They not, may not always be able to generate sophisticated language, but they do need sophisticated speech generating devices. Get rid of the idea that they are limited to speech generating devices with limited potential. It ain't so. Excellent, wonderful stuff. And so maybe in a sentence or two, what do you want folks to take away from what you've been talking about? All right. Well, my takeaway for today is pretty simple, and it's to embrace the adult with intellectual and developmental disabilities as a fully evolved human being with the same fears, needs, and emotions as you and I. They need our support as AAC experts as they navigate through the waters of aging, loss, and grief. If you can do that, you will have served them very well and done me proud. And so after listening to all this, if people have any comments or questions, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? 
Well, other than getting on a plane and flying down to Orlando and hanging out. Um, <laughs> Which I'm sure folks would like to do, so that's great. Yeah, if you talk to ATIA in Orlando, we, we can hang out, but probably an easier and, and more realistic and economically way to do this would be to contact me via email. It's my first initial, G, and then my last name, Van Tatenhove, V-A-N-T-A-T-E-N-H-O-V-E, all one word, no spaces, at CFL, like Charlie Frank Lloyd or Central Florida, CFL dot R-R, like roadrunner.com. But uh, probably the better one is, uh, yeah, make a trip to ATIA and uh, you will always be there at the conference. So I'm sure people can meet up and uh, have a meet and greet. It'd be a wonderful way to ask some questions. Absolutely. I'm just, uh, I'm just a couple miles away from the conference center and I will, for many, many years, go to that <laughs> conference. <laughs> Thank you ever so much, Gail Van Tatenhove, for uh, spending this time with me. Fascinating stuff. I've learned a lot. Hope the people who are listening have learned some stuff. And hopefully we can get you back in a future episode to talk about other things. So, Gail, thanks very much. You're so very welcome, Russell. Thank you.